Welcome to Blue Line, the podcast hosted by Blue Line, Canada's only independent national magazine for law enforcement. You've tuned in to hear compelling conversations on hot topics and trends with law enforcement professionals and personalities from across Canada. And now, a message from our sponsor, Wilfrid Laurier University. With Laurier's 100% online degree programs, you can earn your undergraduate or graduate degree from a top-ranked university with an academic and institutional tradition that is over 100 years old. Choose from a Bachelor of Arts in Policing, a Bachelor of Arts in Criminology and Policing, Master of Public Safety, and five graduate diplomas in the areas of Emergency Management, National Security, Countering Crime, Border Strategies, and GIS and Data Analytics. Transfer credits apply for basic constable training towards a BA in policing. For more information, visit www.laurierpublicsafety.ca. Hello, Blue Line the Podcast subscribers. We hope you're doing well and welcome back to another episode of Blue Line the Podcast. I'm Brittany Schroeder, editor of Blue Line Magazine. Today, we are joined by retired Sergeant Lonnie Blackett. We will be chatting about his career, the changes he noticed throughout his time as an officer, and the importance of continuing education and training within the law enforcement profession. Welcome, and thank you for joining me today. Good day. Thank you very much, Brittany, for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you today. You have over 30 years of experience in the industry, and I think you're going to share some awesome insight into everything that kind of went on throughout your career. So like jumping right in, um, can you tell me what inspired you to become a police officer? People have asked me this question many, many times before, and even my children. Um, since I was about eight years old, and I mean that, since I was about eight years old, that's all I wanted to do. Why? <laughs> I don't know. Um, I know myself, I'm a bit of a people person. I like talking to people. I like relating to the public. And since I was eight years old, this was my prime goal, either going into policing, if that didn't work, going into the military. I believe I have it in me, um, but policing is all I wanted to do. I did it. I know I did it well. I'm quite happy when I left the job after 33 years, and uh, I knew it was time for me to go. Um, but I enjoyed every day. I never had a bad day out there. Yeah, it might have been some supervisors or higher-ups who try to ruin your day sometime, and this happens in every uh, every police force, but um, I enjoyed it. I laughed a lot, and I enjoyed it, and uh, I do believe I left quite a legacy with uh, my police department, Beale Regional Police. That's so awesome, and like I said, I'd love to hear about your career from recruitment all the way up to retiring as a sergeant. You also shared with me that you were the first Black police officer in Brampton. Can you tell me about that experience? Yes, that's correct. When I joined Peel in the year 1974, that was the year that Peel Regional Police was formed. It was There was an amalgamation of uh, five small police forces. And excuse me, I still tend to use the term force police force. Uh, now it's police service. Uh, I, I still believe that the police are a force to be reckoned with. Society may think differently, but uh, we'll try alternate between police force and police service. When I started, it was 1974. That's the first year the, the, the Peel Regional Police Service was formed. Um, and uh, the opportunity came up. I wanted to do it. And I thought I would toss my head in the ring, so to speak. And I was, uh, I was, I was hired. And even before I started, 
my recruiting officer had called me up to give me the date. And then I, I sort of backtracked and I told him, I don't think I want to come in. Uh, I'm not too sure what's happening. And he called me into the office, sat me down and we had a, we had a serious talk. He said, we wanted you, you did very well on the scores. And uh, this place is growing, et cetera, et cetera, what the salaries were. And I started off there. It was good. Um, when I started off, I was uh, assigned to the Brampton Division, uh, 21 Division, uh, but uh, located next to the Bramley City Center. Now, keep in mind, in those days, prior to amalgamation, there was the city of Brampton, and then there was Chingakusi Township, which was basically the Bramley Police. They had a small force of about 45 officers. So when I was posted there, basically we did Bramley and the whole city of Brampton and uh, up into the township areas, which is rural, farms, uh, horse ranches and so on. And then city of Brampton took over the entire place. So then we had the whole city of Brampton. When I started policing, the 21 division, there were 64,000 uh, total population. Today, you find the city of Brampton is close to 700,000 people. It is quite, quite a large area. Um, wow. And uh, when we had, when I started at the 21 division, we had approximately 150 officers working out of that division. Today, you find that they're running close to 400 officers working out of that division. The building has been uh, redone and so on. It was a different world then. It was a different world then, not just for me, but for policing in general. Keep in mind the demographics at that time was basically all white Anglo-Saxon Protestant that uh, moved out here. A lot of them were recent immigrants from the United Kingdom. Being the only blackout in the community, um, it was challenging for me, uh, but I enjoyed it. On, uh, on my police force at the time, being the first black in the station, a lot of the guys I worked with never had any black friends or went to school with any black people. I was accepted by, I would say, 95% of the guys, and I mean fully accepted. There was always a few who had their problems and their hangups, but that never bothered me. The officer who was assigned to me as my training officer, I still speak very, very well about this individual. He's passed away. But he took me under his wings just as though I were his brother. And he taught me the job. He taught me the job. He showed me right things. He showed me if I did things wrong, how to correct him. And we developed quite a bond. That, um, even in his last days before he passed away, I was able to visit him and so on. And I thanked him. Um, it was a bit of a trial and error stuff, uh, working up, uh, you know, in, in the North End, as we call it, because Peel region is quite a large region geographically. But I learned a lot. And uh, I quickly um, stood out in many ways, positively and some negatively. I did not have much of a negative response from the community. There were a lot of stares, of course, people, who, who the heck, we got a black guy in Brampton now. Um, but you quickly um, came to know who the good people were and who the offenders were, and they were treated accordingly. And um, sometimes it, uh, you were respected by some of the offenders because of the ways you treated them. I think one of the things I always said to people when I was making an arrest or having to deal with them in a very 
uh, stern manner was it's nothing personal. I'm just doing the job. I've got nothing against you. And uh, I think this went a long way into breaking the ice. I will tell you a, a bit of a story here that I don't know if anyone else uh, being a minority officer has experienced it. Now, keep in those days, we wore the full Sam Brown uniform. You wear your tunic. You know, you could hardly lift your arms up because the things were so tight on you and you wore a cross strap. We wore the cross draw holster. Those things were not safe at all. It was just a button on a thing. And sometimes you're wrestling with uh, someone and oops, there's your revolver uh, on the ground. Fortunately, no one was uh, attacked by, by anybody who picked up that revolver. But I showed up at a domestic call on one of the hotels here in Brampton and um, went to the door. The complainant was a female, knocked on the door, and she opened the door. Now, keep in mind, I'm in my full uniform. And those days, we had to, we were semi-military more then than now. You had to be shining your leather, your boots, and everything. She opened the door and looked at me, and you could see there was shock in her face. And um, she asked me, point blank, are you a police officer? And uh, to which I replied, yes. Can I see some identification? which I did, I produced my wallet, which contained my warrant card and badge. And even then, she was quite hesitant to let me into the room. I went into the room and she said straight up, she didn't know that there were black police officers in Canada. Some people, I would think, might seem to think that she was being racist in her attitude. No, no, she did not know. She came from a small town in Ontario. And she had never seen, or perhaps was not the person to keep up to date with the news and current events and so on. Right, and right. she never knew that. She never knew that there were black police officers. Uh, I suppose I was a little bit taken aback by it. But uh, once I realized, uh, this was after I conducted my investigation and uh, carried on uh, from there. You spoke on it a little bit, but like, how did like, did you go home that night going, oh, you know, like, how did you feel? Like, that's it's, something that, it's something that stayed with me for a bit. I thought about it. Um, the type of person I am, I suppose people have said I'm half comedian. So uh, there was a lot of jokes made about it. Uh, guard room at the station and so on, telling the guys about it. But it's something that I had never experienced before. Um, professional life or so on. And uh, you think about it, but then you realize, hey, there's probably going to be more people like that because I'm the first one up here. And as long as I keep my nose clean and I do my job to the best of my ability, there's a possibility more minorities will be hired. And pretty soon uh, there'll be more minorities on the street. And if you look at it now compared to then to now, I look at my police force uh, region. As a matter of fact, the, the police uh, police services within the greater Toronto area will be Toronto, uh, York region, uh, Alton region, Peel. Uh, there are so many minorities uh, within the organizations now, and I've always maintained that the police department must, must represent the population it serves. Now, out here in Peel, we're very, very diversified in terms of population. And we have people here now, not just the officers at the, the entry level, uh, constable level, but we've got people who have made upward mobility into the mid-management and senior management roles. Personally, it's something that... Uh, I uh, enjoy seeing, I, I believe strongly uh, that I, I, I contributed to that uh, over the years by, by, by doing my job to uh, 
um, high level of, uh, of competence. And um, I'm happy to see that. And, and uh, the country has changed, the province has changed. We're not going back to the 1950s or 1960s as much as some people would like to see it there. We're uh, society and life, we don't uh, regress, we progress. So um, we've got, I believe, a good, good police force there. We're not, uh, we're not perfect, but we've got good people. That's amazing. And after you were hired, do you recall like how long it was until another black police officer was hired? Yes, it was approximately seven years, seven years after that oh, wow. second black officer was hired. And uh, coincidentally, he was also stationed at my division, 21 division in, in Brownlee, Brampton. He stayed with the department for about uh, six years and on his own, he decided he was going to leave and uh, go back into private life and uh, he moved on. Um, following that, there were one or two who were hired and um, went like that for quite a while, for quite a while. As a matter of fact, if I may say this, um, even though we were hired in those days, and I'm being quite blunt here, um, you were hired, but in those days, blacks or minorities were not expected to make upward mobility. You were expected to stay at the constable rank, even though you did a good job, even though you were competent, even though you were respected, you received a lot of commendations. And, uh, and then there was another officer who came on. Um, and uh, we got promoted, not at the same time. It took me about, uh, I guess, about 12 years before I got uh, promoted. And uh, for many, many years, there were just the two of us uh, who were uh, promoted the rank of sergeant. And um, there was quite a, a lull in terms of uh, minorities coming on. Females started to, to, to come onto the department. Females started to, to make up with mobility. But those of us who were visible, we never went anywhere until um, successive administrations changed and until the community, the community spoke out. The community started to speak out. We've got so much diversity here. We're starting to see one or two uh, people of different ethnicities and uh, cultures coming in, but they're not moving anywhere. They're staying at the bottom right. That, of course, caused the department to start to uh, look at people seriously and to promote them, not based because of the color of their skin, but based strictly on merit. And um, this is what we've seen now, and this is where we are, and I don't believe we're going to go back to those days. We're, we're, we're hiring, I mean, part of my, my, my career was a recruiter, and we're hiring um, minorities, kids who were born here, uh, and uh, who see policing as a viable alternative, um, see it as a career. And you can't tell these people we're not going to hire you, but if you hire you with all the qualifications you've got, you're not going anywhere. So in general, I believe things are moving in the right direction. That's awesome. And I'm, I'm really glad that that's what happened. Like the community started to speak out and the, the force or the service recognized that the community was calling for something to change. And they actually made that change. Like that's, that's something great to hear. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, and you mentioned that it took about 12 years before you got your first um, bump up from constable. Um, mm -hmm. I'm assuming you didn't go straight to sergeant. Um, what, what were your yes. steps in between? Yes, the, uh, some of the departments had the corporal ranks and those ranks were uh, done away with. So you went from constable, first class constable, if you were promoted to either sergeant or detective. Uh, full detective oh. is also a rank. 
uh, in plain clothes, your detective, if you went back into uniform, a sergeant. Um, and that's how most of the police organizations, uh, I think the exception may be the RCMP, they still have the corporal rank, just about any other police departments that I'm familiar with. <laughs> from constable to sergeant and staff sergeant and uh, letter. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And this is just a side note, but you you mentioned earlier that like, since you were the first black police officer, like you've kind of like led that way to more um, being hired on the service. And now Peel's police chief is Chief Duryapa and, you know, he's a black man and just like, I mean, that started with you. That's I would like to think so. I would like to think so. And um, I had never met uh, this chief, mm -hmm. um, but I went to his swearing-in when he became chief of Peel, because I wanted to meet him, and I wanted to talk to him, and I wanted to tell him that I was proud to finally see someone who was a minority making it onto the job. We spoke for a bit. We do keep in touch. I believe... I believe he has done quite a bit uh, positively for this organization. He's brought this organization right up. He's a leader. He looks at the future. And um, I'm glad to see him as the chief of police out here. Uh, some people may take issue with me. Having um, grown up, so to speak, within the, the department and served under five police chiefs and administrations, I, I believe this administration is leading the way and I wish him well. That's so awesome. And you kind of touched on this already. You talked about the differences in the uniform that you guys used to wear. Um, just other kinds of changes that you saw throughout your 33 year career from the equipment you use to other changes in the uniform, um, different ways of training. Like what did you notice um, change throughout your career? It was quite a bit of change, quite a bit of change. We're talking over 33 years when I was on the job, quite a bit of change, and then things are still changing. The uniforms we wore at the time, as I said, were more semi-military, but that's what society expected at the time. Um, if you look at the people, when I came on the job, the people who were the NCOs, non-commissioned officers, the sergeants, the staff sergeants, even some of the inspectors, most of these people came from the military. They were ex-military. And it transcended into policing that this is how you do things. For example, basically, we have before the officers are sent out on the street, the uniform officers, we refer to as parade, or basically it's a roll call. And uh, at, at my time when I started, it, this was, you stood at attention. You showed all of your equipment. The sergeant or the staff sergeant would come around and he would be in his full uniform and he'd inspect you from head to toe. He'd look at your uniform. He'd look at the peak of your hat if there was any dust on it. He'd look at your shirts if they weren't properly ironed. Um, and he would tell you, change that shirt before you go out in the street. And if you come back in the next night with something looking like it, you're in trouble. Oh. Um, now, the, 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 the parades or the roll calls, it's a sit-down affair. People just go up, sit down. It's the sergeants, the sergeant get up front and uh, give them their assignments and certain things to look for, and et cetera. And um, that discipline, I, I suppose, for someone like myself who's, who's, who started into it, um, it's missing to a certain point. Your sergeant in those days was God. 
you dare not disobey his, uh, and I say his because in those days there were no female sergeants, maybe one someplace uh, in the organization. You didn't go around him and walk straight into the staff sergeant's office. You had to go through your sergeant. Even at the police college when we were there, everything again was in a military flat. You had to make up your beds and sometimes they'd throw an inspection on you and your beds had to be made according to the regulations and stipulated by the college. And if they weren't, they'd tear them up and uh, you would uh, have to make them again. You evaluated on these things as, as a rookie. Wow. Um, yes, society has changed. I know that we've got to keep up with it. Um, and I've heard some people going off, uh, going off track here, even some uh, school teachers talking about the kids they have, the kids just don't respect them. But policing is something that is going to change, has to change. And as much as uh, perhaps I still adhere to some of the, uh, the old uh, regulations and so that we had, I, I think I'm realistic to know that time has to go on. Um, at times, you, those days you never spoke back to your sergeant. Now it's, you know, from what I understand, uh, People call the sergeants or just speak back to them or sort of threaten them. They're going to report them. That type of thing wouldn't happen in my day. It would be, well, let's fill in the blanks there. Um, uniforms changed from more uh, from to, to more of a working uniform. Were you able to, to, to get out and you, you started, we started carrying the, the open holsters. And then we went to the semi-automatics now that we have. Some of the older officers would remember what I'm going to say here, because the younger officers who are in, in now seem to think this is how the way things were. We, they joined the job. They had the semi-automatic uh, sidearms. We didn't have those. We had to march on Queen's Park to get those things back in the, I believe it was the late 80s, perhaps. It was organized by the Metro Toronto Police Association. Those days we call them Metro, and I'll refer to Toronto Police, to get the proper firearms. And there were activists within the community who were dead set against us carrying semi-automatic weapons. Oh. Meanwhile, the criminals in the street were carrying them and carrying bigger and better weapons than we had. We had the six-shot uh, revolvers. Good weapon, but they were not uh, weapons that could keep up to the, to the weapons that the people in the streets were carrying. Right. And it was the first time I saw a police demonstration in full uniform. Uh, there were police uh, forces from across the greater Toronto area, and I believe Ottawa sent a couple of guys. And uh, there were several hundred of us downtown in Toronto. We, we uh, mustered there and marched onto Queen's Park. It was an organ, very, uh, it wasn't a loud, boisterous march. It was orderly, but we were demanding at that time uh, that we be given the firearms, and eventually we got them. This is something that uh, I don't believe too many officers are aware of this. They don't know this. It's not something that's uh, written up in, in police magazines, but it, it did happen. I don't remember the exact year, but it was probably in the late 80s. And I can tell you that there were community activists who were dead set because in their minds, we wanted these things to, quote, unquote, shoot more people. Right. Which, of course, is completely wrong. <laughs> completely wrong. Completely wrong. I don't know if any police officer who wakes up in the morning, goes to work and says, well, today I'm going to shoot somebody. Right. You are given that firearm to protect yourself and to protect others. Mm. Having said that, training has to keep up to date, especially when it comes to training with firearms. 
this has to change. It has to go on. Yeah. In my day when we started, we used to be shown pop-up videos. Shoot, don't shoot. It would show something, an individual is carrying a knife, shoot, don't shoot. You were taught to shoot. He had the knife in his hand. He was not advancing. He wasn't yelling and screaming at you. He had a knife. Shoot. There was no room, at least at that time, for dialogue between yourself and this individual. Right. Sadly, we've seen in the past, some people have lost their lives to this. It's how the officers were trained. You can't blame the officers for it. I remember a situation with myself. I was only on the job for about three years. And again, we we're still carrying those uh, cross draw holsters. Responded to what uh, was a domestic call. When I got to the scene, it was on a, on a, on a court. And uh, someone just shouted because there were tons of people out in the street and someone just shouted, look out, he's got a knife. And I turned around and behind me, there was this fellow, I believe he was around 19 at the time, and he had a knife and it was a fairly large knife. And uh, before I could get the information from the public who called, he had a knife. I did what I had to do. I drew my firearm. And there was a standoff. The only reason why I did not shoot even though my training said, with a knife, shoot, was he started to back away from me. I advanced, he backed away some more. I kept advancing, he backed away. He never came towards myself. Now I knew backup was coming. Unfortunately, the backup unit that showed up was a backup unit, a two-man unit from the tactical squad, unmarked car. They came around and to hear uh, one of the officers says subsequently, he says, all I saw was that barrel of that gun looking at this kid. The driver of the car had the wherewithal, the common sense to put that bumper right in the back of the guy's knees and he knocked him right over the hood. The knife went flying. We grabbed him. Wow. I've thought about that many, many times, even now. Had I shot that individual, there's no doubt in my mind, based on training, I would have been cleared. I would have had to live with that. I went back to the division. Of course, I got to do my uh, report. Mm -hmm. Went back to the division, fill in uh, the staff sergeant as to what happened. And when I sat down to do my report, I couldn't do it. My entire body started shaking. Oh. My body started shaking. And honestly, if it was available, I think I would have uh, had a good drink or three. Um, but I had to walk away and just walk around and for quite a bit before I could sit down and compose myself. Yeah. Thinking of what if, what could have happened? What could have happened? And the thing is, that would have messed me up. I'm sure it would have. I'm still thinking about it. Yeah. Occasionally. And people talk about, ah, you know, the officers couldn't do this or couldn't do it. Look, let me tell you something. As a former recruiter. And our standards in Peel were always high. We had some of the highest standards before uh, some of the other police departments who were strictly going with grade 12. We took people with a college, university, or a combination of linguistic skills played a, played a big role because the population out in Peel, the diversity was growing. I know for a fact that when we hire someone, because we tested these people psychologically also, 
they've checked off all the boxes. They've met the standards. Put them out in the street for five or eight or 10 years and some of the things that they experience and see will blow their minds. It is only now we're starting to see that police forces, police services are paying attention to what is now known as PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. In my days, I've seen it, I've heard it. Your superiors in rank will tell you to suck it up. Get back out and run and do the job. Who the hell do you think you are, some wimp? You will be made fun of, you'll be ostracized, your careers in tatters. And what did this cause? A lot of guys turned to the bottle. Easiest thing to get is alcohol. And we had some champion alcoholics in the department. I mean, these guys had papers in drinking, you know. Um, and people would talk about them. And it would affect their careers. They weren't drinking because they loved it. They were drinking to deaden the pain because you couldn't talk to anyone. A lot of marriages, a lot of relationships went down the hill. A lot of officers became promiscuous as a way to conquer um, their fears. Now we're seeing most um, police forces uh, have got um, wellness bureaus within, or they are making help available quickly to officers who experience things. Just seeing uh, car crashes where bodies are mutilated. We're seeing teenagers committing suicide. And uh, you walk into that residence or just going into uh, the middle of the night, knocking on the doors and waking someone up, a family. And they come to the door at 1.32 o'clock in the morning. They know you're not there to play tiddlywinks. What happened? Where's my husband? And to see that family be destroyed right there and then, it affects you. Now, again, to repeat myself, officers are gradually getting the help they need. So when people say, you know, you got this bad cop and that bad cop, yeah, you got some cops out there that have done some atrocious things. And I don't stand behind them. And uh, there were some people who should not have been hired by police departments, but eventually they get weeded out. I don't know of any police officer or any police department who wants to have a bad apple on their force. The guys that you work with, once they realize you're that type, they'll turn against you. They'll turn you in. They don't want to have that because of the negative publicity that it generates. People see us out there. People depend on us. Yeah. You remove the police officer from society, Brittany. What have we got? What have we got? We could get by without a lot of things day to day in society. No garbage pickup, no mail. Get the police officers off the street and you will see chaos. If I could uh, continue along this vein, I grew up in the city of Montreal. I remember 1969, I was just a young guy there at my first apartment. And uh, in the summer of 1969, there was the first police strike in this country. Again, this is something that young officers are not aware of. It's not something that you see in police magazines. First police strike when the city of Montreal police went on strike for wages. And they're more of a militaristic group in, in, in the province of Quebec, their police forces, than we are here. For 14 hours, there were no police officers in the street. And uh, I finished working and I went home, stayed in my apartment because downtown Montreal was burning. There was looting, 
women were not safe to walk on the streets because women were fair game riding in the subway system, the metro. There were always idiots on there who were doing all sorts of things and uh, laughing about it because there was no police officers coming. It was uh, the Quebec government sent in the Quebec Provincial Police, the Street de Quebec, the SQ, to help out. And one of their officers were shot and killed. That murder of that police officer has not been solved to this day. Oh my God. This day. We're talking 50 years later. Wow. Eventually, cooler heads prevailed. The officers went back to their jobs. But it was chaos. I saw it, I lived through it. And I know the last two years, because of a lot of situations that the United States, and please don't try to compare police here with, uh, with the police in the United States. We're more professional, better trained, our salaries are better. Policing here in Canada is a profession. It's not a job, it's a profession. If you get into this, and there's lots of ways how things are done differently down there. But police officers here, we need the support of the community. We're not against anybody. And any police officer, individually or collectively, who has got an attitude uh, against certain people in the community, he's going to be weeded out very quickly. He'll be found. Keep in mind, we have a code of conduct and discipline internally, which... Really, you don't want to be subject to that type of stuff. Right. Uh, if you're demoted, you're losing money, a lot of money. You got a wife, you got a mortgage, your kids, and again, you're ostracized. Most of these guys individually, they leave, they move on to something else. Like you said, a lot of new younger officers, they probably have no idea about most of this stuff. And that's just I am learning so much, um, but I wanted to go back and um, talk about that situation you had with the the man who had the knife and you didn't mm -hmm. shoot, um, yes. but like your training told you to. Do you think like that would kind of relate to nowadays when they're talking about de-escalation training and stuff like that, like trying to talk the, the subject down um, and like try to get him to put the knife down? Is that, is that kind of Go in hand. There, there has to be de-escalation training. Now, understand one thing: training takes money. Yeah. Uh, depending on the the, the the type of course, depending on the length of course, officers are taken off the street and being trained either within their department or sent elsewhere to to be trained. So that means you've got less manpower out there, which means, of course, you've got to make up for it. You've got to schedule guys, perhaps, who from different platoons who are off duty or fill in. Again, that takes money. During the course of my career, I would say a good 10 to 12 years before I retired, I was trained as a hostage negotiator. That is a tremendous course for officers to be sent on. It teaches you how to de-escalate, teaches you how to talk to people. Having said that, we're not going to be able to talk everyone down. We used to talk about the three, uh, the three T's, time, talk, and tear gas. And talk to this guy. It may take hours going to the next day. And you, as much as possible, if you have the officers 
You can't just use one hostage negotiator because he starts getting burned out. You've got to have two or three. And you've got to get away from that desk if it's you're doing it or if you're seeing, relax, get your, your mindset again, come on back in. As long as you've got this individual talking to you, there is hope. Even if he calls you every name in the book, if, uh, gives you the history of your genealogy, that's fine. Let him talk. Right. The hard part is if this individual has suddenly stopped talking, then we got a problem. Right. What is happening? Yeah. Has he killed himself? Has he killed a hostage? Has he passed out from being uh, intoxicated or on drugs? This is where you have to use your tactical unit to make an entry. Right. I wish, and again, it's 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 a money thing. I wish that just about every second or third officer, perhaps all out there, should get some form of hostage negotiation training. Again, perhaps I'm barking up the wrong tree here again, but it takes time to get people to be trained. I always used to tell the young officers, as I was a training officer, I worked in recruiting and training also. And sometimes you'd ask them, what's the biggest weapon you have with you? And invariably, they're young, they're green, they're still sidearm. Well, the biggest weapon you carry out there is your mouth. You know to speak to people. Yeah. You know to speak to people. Show respect. If you don't show respect, you're not going to get respect. Yeah. Then the situation goes up. Instead of starting from the bottom, you started from the top. Where do you go when you're at the top now? You're into your firearm. Look, let's take, for example, I mean, look at the United States and some of it, especially in the South. Officer walks up to the car, first thing he's got his gun, his hand is on his gun, either on the on the weapon or he's got it out. Why? Well, where does he go from there? It's a good put it back in and say, okay, instead of walking up, how are you, sir? May I see your driver's license? First thing, yeah, I, I understand. Everybody just about carries a weapon down here. It's in their constitution. Yeah. But you just walk up, car, you pull someone over and you got your firearm out. Where are you going from there? You can't back down. You got to use it. And this is the difference between us here and those in the United States. And I'm opening up myself to a lot of debate. Bring it on. <laughs> we are better trained here as police officers in this country. Yes, don't get me wrong. There are times, if it's a high-risk takedown, we've got to have our weapons out. It happens. Yeah. Any officer out there who's been on for a bit has made arrests at gunpoint. And as I've always told the young fellas, if you're going to draw that weapon, be prepared to use it. Don't bluff. Yeah. If you think you're going to bluff this idiot, he's going to take that weapon and he's going to use it on you. But big thing is the experience. And experience is not only something that you personally experience. There's imagined experience. Read up on these things. You had a quiet moment, sit and think, what if all of a sudden I'm driving by this apartment building, there's some guy up there with a weapon. What do you do? Replay that in your mind. You pull up your car and there's a guy pointing a gun at you. Replay it in your mind. So when it does happen, you know how to, re how to respond. Don't try and take things on 
all by yourself. Uh, you know, I'm the young copper who's likely to win the battle against crime. That, that, that's not going to happen. We work as a team. And in the larger uh, police forces, again, in the greater Toronto area, because we've got so many officers and so forth, uh, backup is not far away most of the time. You going to work in the morning? I always say to the young fellows, before you go out in the street, regardless of your faith, regardless of your belief, say a silent prayer. You intend to go home, whether you're single or to your family, your parents, you know, you, you all got parents, so we got wives, your kids, they need you. Newspapers like to, you know, blow things out of proportion at times before they get the full facts. I'm not saying we are perfect as police. Police are not perfect. We all make mistakes. Care is human. You're human, exactly. I have traveled around this world a bit. Um, when I retired, I worked with a couple of airlines as corporate security and onboard security. And I'm telling you, not just in that uh, facet, but you know, we travel around every year on vacation. The best policing in the world, and I'm saying this with pride, the best policing in the world, policing we have here in Canada. Go to some other countries and see what you've got. See what you've got. What we have in Canada is just, you know, like I'm, I'm happy that I live here for sure. <laughs> well, I think also too because of the fact that uh, you know we don't have uh, in our constitution that we have a right to bear arms. Um, yes, there are guns out in the street, and a lot of guns. Unfortunately, they're in the hands of the criminals. There's a lot of guns out there. The average person may have uh, weapons, rifles, shotguns for hunting. Odd time, and I mean the odd time, maybe a marital breakup or something, and uh, one person uses a weapon against each other, but that's the odd time. You look at the amount of school shootings and so on in the United States. Are you or some of the young officers who will be looking at this uh, podcast down the road, you're aware that we had the first school shooting here occurred in Brampton in 1975? Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Brampton Centennial Secondary School. This was less than a year after I came on the job. Wow. We did not have a tactical unit then. Beetle was still starting and growing. There was an officer who served with me. He's also retired now. He was a student at that school, and he missed getting shot by the uh, offender, who was also a student from that school. Oh, my God. He went on to become a police officer. Um, and as I said, he's now retired. I think there were three people, one teacher, and then the individual that the perpetrator eventually turned the weapon on himself. But you don't hear about that. Yeah. That's something that from a historical point of view in terms of policing, I don't know of any, uh, any young officer who, who knows about that here. We've had it here in Canada. And we're fortunate that we don't have access to firearms, but we probably have more of these things or disgruntled employees, as we've seen in the United States, as we say, going postal. Mm -hmm. Well, those were all of my questions. Do you have anything else that you want to touch on before we wrap up? I want to thank you for giving me this opportunity to do this podcast. I mean, there's a lot more things that should come out. Um, again, from some of my experience, uh, who's seen it from the transition from 
when we first started out here in Peel. And the same with Toronto police. I mean, you, if you were to talk to someone who's retired from the Toronto police force or from York or from Niagara, um, we've had some pretty, pardon the expression, badass dudes in society. Um, <laughs> we were able to get them, we were able to bring them to justice. It seems now that um, since we've had the Charter of Rights uh, come in, and Charter of Rights is good, we need it for everyone. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people seem to try to skate under this type of thing or use it uh, for everything. Um, we tend at times to pick up on everything that happens in the United States. And we think to uh, import it here and, and be the same way. Mm-hmm. We're a different country. We're a different country. Um, we've got to be the way we always were. This, this, is, this is the best country in the world. People who are not born in Canada, I don't think they understand that this is the best country in the world. Yeah. And we need good policing. Policing has got to be professional job. Police officers, as I said, when they come on the job, they've got what you're looking for. But education has to improve within policing. Not just what you've got when you enter, but you've got to keep up to date, keep current statutes change. Mm-hmm. Um, laws change. You got to keep up to date with those. Are you writing up someone on an old law that doesn't uh, apply today and he walks into court and is tossed out? Officers have got to improve their personal education. Here in Peel, we're dealing with more of a middle class to upper middle class people who are aware. You've got teenagers who can tell you the law just as much as you know it, and they will question you and challenge you. Yeah. Keep up to date, keep learning, go back to school. You can spend time. We get a lot of time off as police officers. One night a week, whether you do it online or you uh, attend in person. Um, I did it. Uh, go to uh, one of the colleges, universities, keep up to date. The world is changing. Computer skills are changing. Uh, the cyber world is something that we've got to be careful of. Uh, slowly, police uh, departments are getting into uh, getting investigators there, but there's a lot we don't know. Mm -hmm. about computer crime. We've got to keep up to date with that. So I would say to the young police officers, do your job, be careful. Uh, Put aside the gongo attitude, respect people. Where you talk to people will decide how you're going to handle that situation. Listen to the experience from your your, your older officers, uh, senior guys, unfortunately. A lot of the guys are retiring and you've got young, young guys with three years on the job who are out there training officers. And these, these, these young training officers haven't seen a naked, angry man yet, but they're training. And that's one of the things people, the pension is good in officers as soon as they get that 30 years out the door. Yeah. Um, so we're not perfect. Policing is not perfect. Police officers are not perfect. We try, we do our best. We ask as the community support us, try to understand us. Listen to the facts before you start making your judgment. I have always said from the time I started, my family, I was not going to die on this job. And I didn't. I left the job with my head screwed on right. I still laugh and have fun. I still associate with a lot of police officers. As a matter of fact, over the last year, our uh, chief Nish, had me in uh, on two occasions to talk to recruit classes on systemic racism. And um, it went over well. I know it went over well. 
Awesome. And um, I would like to see some nice police forces using those officers who are interested. A lot of officers, once, once they quit, they want nothing to do with them. There's one or two of us around who's still interested. Mm-hmm. Teaching and talking to the, the, the brand new officers coming in there. We're not there to tell whole stories, as we say, war stories, what we did, <laughs> what we didn't do. If you want that, we can get that to what we're talking about. What do basic common sense things Mm-hmm. how to approach a vehicle, how to do this, how to do that. I think this is where a lot of police forces are, are missing out on using some of your retirees who are interested in coming back yeah. and, and talking to your people. It's nothing like experience. Well, Lonnie, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your experiences from your three over three decades in the law enforcement industry. I learned so much, and I really hope that everyone who listens to our podcast as well learns from your experiences hopefully those those young cops are are listening in um to our audience we hope that you enjoyed this episode of blue line the podcast be sure to check us out on soundcloud itunes spotify or wherever you get your podcasts you can stay up to date on all of your canadian policing news at blueline.ca thank you to everyone who listened and thank you lonnie thank you With Laurier's 100% online degree programs, you can earn your undergraduate or graduate degree from a top-ranked university with an academic and institutional tradition that is over 100 years old. Choose from a Bachelor of Arts in Policing, Bachelor of Arts in Criminology and Policing, Master of Public Safety, and five graduate diplomas in the areas of Emergency Management, National Security, Countering Crime, Border Strategies, and GIS and Data Analytics. Transfer credits apply for basic constable training towards a BA in policing. For more information, visit www.laurierpubliccafety.ca. Thank you for joining Blue Line, the podcast hosted by Blue Line, Canada's only independent national magazine for law enforcement. 